Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the stories that shape us, and how we can engage better across our deep differences. Every episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, and I ask them about what they believe, politically, philosophically, religiously or other, in a non-combative, hopefully human-sounding way. My hope is that by listening to a real range of different perspectives and positions, I can grow in empathy, understanding and ability to be some use in our divided world, and that you listening might even do so too. If you're enjoying The Sacred, please do, as always, rate, review and share the podcast. It really helps us out. As you know, the algorithm takes that information and spits out what to recommend to other people. So we'd really appreciate it. You might also enjoy our new sister podcast, also from Theos, Reading Our Times with Nick Spencer, which helps us understand these strange times we're living in through the lens of some of our most influential books. In this episode of The Sacred, you'll hear a conversation I had with Jules Evans. Jules is a writer, speaker, and practical philosopher. He's a research fellow at the Centre for the History of Emotions, Queen Mary, University of London. He's also the founder of the London Philosophy Club and co-founder of the first Stoicon, a festival of Stoicism. He's also the author of Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, The Art of Losing Control, Holiday from the Self, and most recently, Breaking Open, Finding a Way Through Spiritual Emergency. We discussed his boarding school hedonism, near-death experiences, foray into charismatic Christianity, and why he thinks our society needs more space for ecstatic experiences. I really hope you enjoy listening. Jules, you know the deal. You've been around this podcast a bit. You know the big, enormous question I'm going to kick off with, and you've had quite a bit of time to think about it. So I'm not even going to frame it. I'm just going to see where you take it. What is sacred to you? Um, I think what drives me, I guess, in, in the sense of what's sacred to me, would be trying to find something that feels uh, true uh, and that it's really helpful to me in my life at that moment. Um, and I suppose that one of my sacred values would also be just curiosity, just constantly trying to learn more and uh, be more in touch with with reality as well. So I, I suppose curiosity and trying to deepen my experience and engagement with reality is sacred for me. I want to pick up that thread again, but we're going to wind back first to get a sense of of your origin myth, where you've come from, <laughs> the story of um, of of your childhood in particular, and you know I know you've done, you're interested in um, psychotherapy and and other things, so I don't need to make the case to you for why understanding a bit about our own childhoods and maybe even a little bit about other people's childhoods just helps us with empathy building and understanding. So tell me, tell me. Tell me how you grew up, where you grew up, and particular if in, in particular, if there are any big ideas, philosophical, political, religious, what was in the air that went on to form you? Mm, so I suppose I had um a lucky, um, like privileged uh childhood. Um I went to like uh private school and I went to boarding school. Um and Jules, did what, you go to Eton? Yeah. Whenever I, you talk about it, you avoid the name. Me. Tell me yeah, about that. Is it because there's a stigma around it? 
Um, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, and I think it's it's partly a stigma, but it's also just the sense that <clears throat> it's it's you were sent somewhere, and you were lucky to go there, um, and it was quite a bubble. So it's also a kind of a, a discomfort some people feel with having had the uh, good fortune and, and privilege of, of having that. But I'm sorry, I didn't um, mean to to out you there. If you're genuinely uncomfortable with it, I just am interested no. in. The way I mean, those things, you know, those tropes come up in public conversations on how comfortable we are, are aligning ourselves with them or not. Yeah, and I think it's funny, it comes out in two ways in the public conversation. Either it's like how incredibly lucky um, those people were to go there or how incredibly unlucky they were and they were completely messed up by it. And you have psychologists who talk about something called boarding school syndrome and they blame the ills of our country on the fact that, you know, our leaders were all um, damaged by being sent away so young. Um, so, I mean, it, it definitely is a weird experience. It's like the most, um, it's such a kind of pressure boiler. It, it's so formative. I mean, I was only sent away like to, to Eton when I was 13, but it's such an intense thing. It's It's an intense like bonding experience. So, my friendships from school are still like my best friendships, for example. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, it's also, it's, it was a very, it was, it's such a culture. It's such a kind of enculturating experience. Um, and, and I guess from, from the point of view of a writer, you're going to a school which is such a heritage of writers. Like I'm, I'm researching, I'm writing a book about Aldous Huxley at the moment. He was a pupil there and a teacher and he taught George Orwell. So you had one of the kind of most famous dystopian writers teaching uh, another. Um, and there was, there's, so it gave you that sense of, you know, you, you can do this, you can be a writer too. But it's also true that, um, you know, it's, it's an emotionally weird culture. Uh, you're taught in a way to suppress your emotions. Uh, I mean, the, the friendships are strong, but there's, they're always at a certain emotional level. Um, you're also very much trained to to be a high performer. To ex- you know, you've been given all this privilege. You better you better kind of succeed. So there are there are great expectations put on your shoulders, and that that breaks some people. So likewise, I suppose the formative thing of me and my childhood and adolescence was being at Eton. Um, getting out of my head on drugs. So I, when I was there, there was a kind of epidemic of, of drug taking. Uh, Do you think that was a reaction to the pressure? Um, I think it was a reaction to the boredom. I think you're just stuck there. There are no girls around. So you just get out of your head. Uh, and it was like a rite of passage. Um, it was like a kind of improvised ritual that us adolescent boys developed. Of like, And it was also just... It was exciting. I mean, suddenly ecstasy was available uh, and LSD and we were just fascinated by these experiences we could have. And it also, it like hit me on my, um, like on the last year of school. And then I, I basically developed um, post-traumatic stress while I was at university. And that really forced me on a journey to try and, and know myself and understand my emotions better. The PTSD was directly related to the drug taking, you think? I think so, yeah. I had uh, a couple of bad trips on um, LSD, which 
you know, might might not, I'm sure wouldn't have been traumatizing for a lot of people. But I, I think what made it traumatizing for me was the fact that first of all, I didn't talk to anyone about it. Like I didn't have the emotional repertoire to, 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 to discuss this stuff. Um, so that kind of burying of it and shame around it made it traumatic. So for me, it developed into kind of, I don't know, panic attacks and depression. And it's just this kind of cycle of rumination, um, which it took me a good few years to get out of. And what what helped? What was a kind of turning point away from it? Um, two things I reckon helped. Um, the first was when I was uh, around 24. So I, I would say that I was on a kind of downward trajectory for about five or six years of feeling more and more um, lost and anxious and so on. And then uh, when I was 24, I had like a a near-death experience, which is, it's hard to kind of explain because I don't understand it myself to this day. But I basically had a bad um, skiing accident uh, where I went off the side of a mountain and fell and you know, broke my leg and um, knocked myself unconscious, except I didn't um, become unconscious. Instead, I had some strange white light encounter where I felt um, like enveloped in some kind of white light and filled with love and filled with this um, insight that what had been causing my trauma and my emotional suffering was not some kind of permanent damage to my brain, which is what I was really afraid of, but my own beliefs, um, which I could change. So this insight just kind of came to me in this moment. And it was like a a, a beautiful epiphany, uh, which was also combined with this deep sense of being loved and being okay, um, which felt like it was from something bigger than me, um, like, and I don't know if that was God or, um, or I, I, you know, there's so many different ways one could understand that experience and words fail really. Um, so that was incredibly helpful and incredibly lucky to have that because a lot of people who have trauma don't ever get that. Um, and it lasted for a good few weeks and months of me just feeling totally healed and regenerated and, um, at peace with myself and therefore able to connect to others as well without fear or suspicion. Um, But then what happened was it kind of faded away. Um, That's just what happens with epiphanies. Uh, And um, old habits of depression and anxiety came back to some extent. So I realized I needed to take the insights that I got from that epiphany and turn them into new habits of thinking and feeling. Um, and I looked to cognitive behavioral therapy to do that. And I went to a CBT peer group, like a support group for people who suffer from social anxiety. And that really helped as well. And that's basically when I took the, that insight <clears throat> that it's our beliefs that causes suffering. And I, I had a, a kind of system to, to a, a, of daily practice to turn that insight into, um, you know, um, altered traits of personality. So so cognitive therapy hugely helped me. And then I went to interview the people who'd who'd invented CBT, um, Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck, they're called. And they told me their 
their main inspiration for CBT was um, Stoic philosophy, uh, particularly this, this quote by Stoic philosopher Epictetus, uh, people are disturbed not by events, but by their opinion about events. And that got me deeply into Stoic philosophy and the idea of philosophy as a way of life. So I'd say those three things, the, the near-death experience, cognitive therapy, and then Stoic philosophy. Those are the things that basically got me out of the, the hole that I was in. Recent book about breaking open, but also previous books on ecstatic experiences and ayahuasca. What is it that draws you to this subject? Why do you keep coming back to it both personally and in terms of writing about it and trying to be a public voice for ecstatic experiences and psychedelics and these moments away from our kind of rational humdrum day-to-day activity? I'm just drawn to um, mysticism and the idea that the best way to connect to reality isn't just through rationality, um, but there are other modes of consciousness as well. And then I suppose what I'm really trying to do is, um, is balance, find the balance between these different ways of thinking find the balance between the critical and the rational and um, uh, deeper states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness. Um, so so I'm not an irrationalist. I'm not just about, um, hey, ecstatic experiences are great all the time. Let's just get loads of them. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just as wary of the ecstatic as I am of the rational. So it's about trying to find the balance between the two. Um, so, I mean, I, I wrote a book called Philosophy for Life, which was about, that was my first book. And that was about how people use Greek philosophy today, particularly Stoicism. So that was very much about, you know, the rational. And that was popular with rationalists and atheists and skeptics, because it, it gave people a philosophy for life, which didn't require any belief in the, in the supernatural. But I then said, yeah, but that needs to be balanced uh, and wrote a second book, which was about how people find ecstatic experiences today. Ecstatic meaning like kind of mystical or spiritual, self-transcendent, when you go beyond your sense of your ordinary self. Um, and, uh, you know, it was it was trying to find the balance between those two things. In, in some ways, those are, those are kind of sister books. Um, they're two sides of, of the same uh, coin. If you look at ancient Greek culture, they they managed to find some balance between like the Socratic and the Dionysiac or the ecstatic. Um, and then in terms of this recent book, uh, it's called Breaking Open, Finding a Way Through Spiritual Emergency. Um, I suppose um, I came to this sense about British culture, uh, particularly, which is that on the whole British culture is, um, has a problematic relationship to the ecstatic modern British culture, where it sees the ecstatic as a bit scary and um, or possibly deluded uh, or possibly a bit mad. Um, and, and that's partly because of, you know, 100 years of psychiatry telling us that ecstatic experiences are a bit mad. Um, and so I think we're just quite a um, empirical, uh, self-controlled, uh, common sense society even though there is, uh, there has always been a massive kind of subculture of ecstatic movements in Britain, from Methodism to uh, Romanticism to uh, you know the swinging sixties and so on, or Acid House. Um, 
so on the whole, I think our culture is rather afraid of these kinds of experiences. And I wanted to try and broaden our Overton window to make us more uh, accept, uh, accepting and tolerant and open to, um, the, I think, the, the, the broad range of states of consciousness that humans naturally experience and not to be afraid of the kind of um, uh, slightly, the, the stuff beyond the rational, but to accept that as totally natural and normal and human. Just explain the Overton window for those not familiar. Um, it's like what's uh, the Overton window is what's considered acceptable. Um, uh, it's usually it's a phrase usually meant in like public discourse or in politics, but I think you can think of it in terms of consciousness as well. Like what types of consciousness, what types of experience uh, are considered like acceptable, acceptable to have, acceptable to talk about. And certainly, when I did that this book on ecstatic experiences. I found it tricky to do talks about it um, in public. I felt that, you know, I felt an awkwardness about it and I felt it in my audience too. It's just like there's at the moment British culture is quite, quite wary of those kinds of experiences. But there are exceptions. Um, well, there are basically, I feel like there are kind of subcultures within British culture which have managed to find a place for the ecstatic uh, a, a, you know, more of a positive, of, you know, validation of those kinds of experiences. Um, I think of like charismatic Christianity. I think of new age spirituality uh, and the psychedelic movement. And then there are also things like, uh, you know, extreme sports, um, uh, the arts as well, but particularly like the new age and charismatic Christianity. I wanted to get you to talk about that a bit, particularly regular listeners to the podcast will know that I became a Christian through an ecstatic experience. And I almost deliberately make myself talk about it for, out of very similar motivations that yeah. I think people don't expect someone like me, who's essentially quite nerdy and runs a think tank, to be yeah. very at home in and very positive about ecstatic forms of Christianity and very keen that the narrative about what belief is isn't like it's a list of dogmas to which you intellectually assent. But something, yeah. you know, is not the, the intellectual isn't important, but it's very far from the whole picture. And I want that sense of yeah. emotional and experiential sense that faith makes to me to be part of the story. So I push myself out of my comfort zone. Or we can often see people's yeah. faces like, oh my goodness, she's a fruit loop and I never knew. <laughs> but you, you, you know, you've had ecstatic experiences with psychedelics and Jewish spirituality and with charismatic Christianity. Tell me a little bit about what that was like. Well, I mean, first of all, I think you're completely right. And I think what you managed to do is to to bring that language into the world of like intelligent media, like Radio 4, uh, and, and that world, like, prospects and all, all that kind of thing that bit of British media is basically quite hostile to the ecstatic I would say it's a bit like um what's it called the cultured despisers of religion yeah. um but I think that is changing hopefully but um yeah so I, I when I when I wrote this book the art of losing control I went looking for how people find ecstatic experiences today it's basically trying to make sense of that near-death experience and like, if that was a connection to God, how can I improve that? How can I deepen that connection? Um, so I, I started off by um, going to going on the Alpha course, um, uh, and I, over a, a year and a half or so, I ended up like having ecstatic experiences uh, in a, 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 an ex, a Christian context. 
um, I went to this extraordinary retreat center in Pembrokeshire called Fafalda Brennan and had, you know, I went to like their three day summer conference. It was basically me in this little Welsh church with about a hundred ecstatic uh, pensioners, like passing out and, and screaming and fainting all around me. Um, and it was kind of, I hated it on the first day. And on the second day, I was like, oh, you know, these are pretty nice people. Maybe there's something to this. And, and then on the third day, you know, I had a, a kind of bizarre somatic experience of, of just being hit with this energy or power. Um, and ended up, you know, giving, converting to Christianity, giving my life to Jesus in that church. And, you know, I think the problem with ecstatic Christianity is it's a bit like a Vegas marriage sometimes. Uh, these kinds of services, um, and I think it's also true of the Alpha Course, um, get people very um, pumped up uh, and in a very emotional state. Um, you know, use, uh, partly, I, I, I don't think they think of it in this kind of cynical way at all, but it is through things like crowd dynamics um, and, and, and mass psychology, uh, and kind of emotional contagion. And then people make, <laughs> make these kind of supposedly lifelong decisions within that state, um, which is, I think is not, is not always going to work. And in a way for me, I think the ecstatic experience I had in that church was, a, was a way of me short circuiting intellectual doubts I had about Christianity, but that doesn't work forever. That will work for a while when you're in that high, but, you know, the doubts will come back. Um, so it's not really uh, a foundation for a sustainable um, marriage, as it were, if you think of like the faith journey as like a, a kind of marriage. Um, so <clears throat> having announced that I was Christian to everyone on my blog and newsletter, having appalled my publishers by saying the next book I wanted to write was, was about Jesus, um, you know, then uh, over the months, it, it, that that kind of faith, that high, wore off, and that was very um, that was really disorientating and and you know difficult for me. Um, and I had to kind of think, well, wh where am I, and where am I going now? Um, if 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 that wasn't you know right for me, I know from the uh, the most recent book that a couple of times you talk about my tribe and you mean sort of Western spirituality as broadly your kind of culture and community, a kind of broadly sort of spiritual but not religious gang. Yeah. I'm sure you'd challenge the premise of all these questions. Can you just sort of sketch out the landscape of that for those who are not at all familiar? I just think there's lots of kind of concepts and practices yeah. that um, might not be known about. Sure. Um, so I, I suppose I grew up as a, <clears throat> as a teenager drawn, uh, uh, my friends and I were drawn to, um, kind of the Western spirituality tradition, which is a tradition that really probably started appearing, I would say, in the romantic era with people like William Blake. Uh, and then it developed in the late 19th century, um, with things like, uh, theosophy, uh, and then it really spread in the 50s and 60s through figures like Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley. And it's an eclectic form of uh, religion that, uh, that, 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 can, that really draws ideas and practices from different religious traditions um, without feeling the need to, to say, um, this is mine and only this. Um, and it also tries to find uh, connections 
um, between uh, science and spirituality. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it, it owes a lot to people like William James or Carl Jung, who developed a kind of, you know, psychology and uh, a psychology of ecstatic experiences, for example, or of dreams or of growth and flourishing. So uh, I suppose it was an, an attempt to respond to kind of Darwinian materialism and the challenge that 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 posed to um, Christianity and find a new form of religion where 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 faith and science are not so much uh, at odds but working together. Um, though that often leads to actually just quite spurious forms of of, of, of science, pseudoscience, I would say. But um, I suppose for, for me, even though I, I, I'm particularly into um, Buddhism, but I I I, I guess I, I find it, um, I just like that tradition and it appeals to my kind of curiosity and desire to learn about different traditions and different ideas. I'm quite drawn to psychology and psychotherapy as well. So I like that attempt to find a kind of marriage between faith and and psychology and psychotherapy. Um, so those are the those are the things I like about. It. And then it's also more open to to psychedelics as well and to to I guess altered states. So those are probably the things that have drawn it uh, drawn me to that culture. Talk to me more about psychedelics because I struggle to get my head around the idea that having had you know, bad enough trips that you got PTSD in your early twenties that you would want to be experimenting with those kind of substances again kind of what what is the draw there and maybe talk to me about ayahuasca particularly because it you know it pops up in the news every so often and um i know that for for a lot of particularly kind of younger people who wouldn't find wouldn't necessarily think to look to organized religion for a place to express their spirituality is one of mm. the more common routes to go down just maybe say what it is and what are your experiences with it um ayahuasca is a um Amazonian brew. Um, uh, it's a, a mixture of two different plants, um, uh, the ayahuasca vine uh, and a uh, plant, I think it's called uh, chacruna. Um, but one of the plants contains DMT, which is a very powerful psychedelic drug, and the other plant contains harmine. And when they're mixed together, this leads to this extraordinary psychedelic experience that lasts about four hours. Um, and this um, brew has become very popular with Westerners um, since around the kind of 80s and 90s. Uh, and um, lots of Western tourists uh, kind of go to Peru and Colombia and uh, drink the potion. And sometimes they do that within um, in, uh, shamanic ceremonies run by uh, Amazonian Indians, um, which is... Uh, and I did that in 2017, uh, and I think it's a totally valid question, Liz. Like, why would you, why would you do psychedelics when they, um, when they'd hurt you so badly when you uh, twenty years before? Uh, and friends of mine, uh, uh, mutual friends of ours, put that exact question to me and thought I was really dumb for doing it. Um, I did. Uh, I'd researched psychedelics um, for the art of losing control, and I was very interested in the idea of guided psychedelic therapy which is very different to how I did psychedelics when I was 18 or 17, as in flinging all kinds of substances into me uh, without any kind of guidance or map and then going to a, a rave. Um, so that kind of, that was the worst kind of container for, for this kind of experience. 
what I've understood about ecstatic experiences is the um, the cultural container in which you have these experiences, in which you go beyond yourself and go into kind of trance states, is incredibly important um, because you are going into quite a subliminal, suggestible state. So you need to be very careful about the cultural container in which you um, unself, and that's as true of the church you're in as um, the kind of psychedelic ceremony you're in. Um, and I picked uh, a place to go to try and psychedelics. Um, I was careful about it. Like um, there were therapists there. Um, it was, you know, it had a, 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 you know, it was a tried and tested place. Because I think some people go to the Amazon and will literally just um, sign up with the first person who says they're a shaman. Uh, and that's very risky because they're putting their, their mind in a very suggestible state into the hands of someone they don't know anything about. Why did I do it? Um, I have a model of the psyche, which is that, um, you know, you can heal yourself at the conscious rational level through things like CBT. And you can also heal yourself at deeper non-rational levels where you're connecting with the kind of subliminal mind. Um, And you can connect with that deep, those deeper aspects of you, um, through different kinds of practices, um, ecstatic practices. And I felt that I had healed myself to a certain extent at the conscious rational level through CBT, but I felt there was still trauma uh, within me, which I wanted to try and connect to at a deeper level and to heal at a deeper level. And that, so I went to do psychedelics for exactly the same reason I went to do the Alpha course, which was trying to connect to that aspect of my psyche that, that's deeper and more subconscious. Um, and I think also to some extent more uh, spiritual, or at least there's aspects of the soul that I, uh, that you sometimes can connect to better, not through conscious rationality. Um, so that's why I did it with, with all kinds of uh, consciousness of the risks as well, that this could drive me crazy. Um, but then in the days afterwards, um, trauma, I think the trauma that was in me came back. I expected to come back on the retreat, not afterwards, but um, after the retreat, for a few days afterwards, I was in a very dissociated state um, where traveling on my own in South America, I thought I'm in, I'm in a kind of, I'm not in normal reality. I'm, I'm in some kind of dream. Um, I, so either this is a dream or perhaps this is like, some kind of limbo state, but I became sure that I wasn't in normal reality. So I was in a very dissociated kind of depersonalized state, um, traveling around in the, in the Galapagos on my own, thinking this is a dream. Uh, and, you know, luckily I didn't really freak out. I just thought, well, this is, but it was disturbing because I also thought, I think I might be dead and therefore not going to see my family again. Uh, and after about two days of this, a friend said, look, uh, 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 who was texting me said look you don't sound well I think you should come back to London so I had to take like three flights back from all the way from the Galapagos to Ecuador from Ecuador to somewhere else and uh to to, to Holland from Holland to London all the time thinking I was in a dream <laughs> you know that I was imagining the planes that the the incredibly Dutch air stewards were just a figment of my own uh, imagination. But but again, managing... It's making me feel like sweaty and tense listening to you talk. It was like Inception. And then I got to the, I got to the airport in London and there was my friend. And I was like, is she real or is she my imagination? I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to act as if she's real. 
Um, and as soon as I hugged her, um, I started to kind of come back to this reality and accept, yeah, okay. And also I'd forgotten to eat for three days. So my friends, like I said, I just looked incredibly thin and ashen faced. And as soon as I had some food in me, I started to come down. And over about a week, like my, my lovely friends like took care of me and didn't freak out, didn't rush me to a psychiatric ward, had trust that this would, that I would, this would pass. Um, and, you know, like some of my, I was able to just, to just ride it to an extent as well and go, okay, like I would occasionally get real anxiety, like, because I, I couldn't really under, understand films or group conversations. I couldn't understand books. So I was quite cognitively disabled. And occasionally you'd think, oh my God, is it going to be like this forever? Have, you know, um, but I, tr- I somehow knew I was, I kind of trusted I'd be okay and that it would pass. Um, and sure enough, after about 10 days, it did. And I was very much just back in this reality and um, completely kind of, yeah, just, just, just back in, in, in normal reality. But um, what, I mean, I, and I, what, so I think that was the trauma from 20 years before coming back. And what was interesting is that um, I managed to play that level, uh, that repeated level, but to play it differently. When I first was traumatized from a bad trip, when I was 18, I completely closed off from others. I completely hidden myself away out of shame and fear. And that, I think, is what made that map, that bad experience into a traumatic experience. When it happened this time when I was 40, I couldn't hide myself away, partly because my flat had been rented out on Airbnb. So I had to be with my friends and I had to rely on them totally to take care of me, which they did. And so that was actually kind of very healing. Because of that experience, I became more interested in the idea of spiritual emergencies, which are basically ecstatic experiences, which are messy and scary and quasi-psychotic and disorientating and how people can come through those kinds of experiences and integrate them uh, w- without them kind of ruining their life. And so that's what Breaking Open is about, um, this recent book. It's basically 14 people's accounts of their like spiritual emergencies, their messy, ecstatic experiences, and what helped them through. Of course, you're going beyond your ordinary self and your ordinary sense of reality. That is not always light and happy and and euphoric. Sometimes it's really scary, particularly in a culture which is so unfamiliar with this kind of experience and doesn't really have the maps and guides to help people when it's a bit trickier. I think if you um, have had trauma in your childhood or adolescence, you're much more likely, if you have an ecstatic experience, that it might bring up difficult stuff because you're going beyond your everyday ego and some of the trauma is going to come back. So I hope that Breaking Open and other people's work on spiritual emergencies um, will give our culture a bit more kind of um, maps and guides and personal accounts of people who've been through um, spiritual experiences which were quite um, difficult and dark, so that we know, yes, this sometimes happens on people's spiritual journeys, but, um, and and it, it's really scary, but it's also like not the end of your life. Uh, and so, it, you know, this is a, as much a kind of theological issue as it is psychological, um, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what we're trying to do with that book. Yeah, that's really helpful. And there are there are lots of connections, I think, to the sense that 
And lots of people that I know when they first, in Christian language, experience the Holy Spirit, they spend a whole load of time crying. It's just like there's suddenly space for grief to come out in a like a safe yeah. container. But it's really, you know, it's exhausting and painful yeah. to sort of cry all this stuff out at the feet of God. Um, and yeah. I am thinking about the, you know, the kind of maps, the valley of the shadow of death, the sense that, there is a deepening that happens through these break, mm. these breakings, these broken moments, these um, bruisings and crushings that, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche would probably say is just like the ridiculous, like weak self-flagellation strand of Christianity. But I think is connected enough to wisdom from other spiritual traditions to say, no, suffering is not a good that we should pursue, but given that it is a part of life, it is something that... Um, there is also a more hopeful way to integrate um, yeah, those experiences. I think that's right. And, and, and I mean, you will know the, the charismatic Christian tradition better than me, but in my engagement with it, um, as and it's exactly the same in New Age spirituality, there is a risk that, um, yes, they find a place for ecstatic experiences, but they it, because they're pushing back against a, a general cultural... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, kind of uh, derogation um, of, 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 of the ecstatic. They can end up going too far the other way and saying ecstatic experiences are always just wonderful. And oh, if you've had a Holy Spirit encounter now, that's it. Your life's just so much better. Isn't your life so much better? Um, and, 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 the, and that actually, you know, this encounter of, uh, you know, this, this, these dissolutions of your ordinary self, of your old self, it's also scary um, and and it's disorientating, and there are moments of of bewilderment and and darkness, and and sometimes even stuff that feels like close to madness. Um, and so I think it's it's really good if um, spiritual communities, religious communities, new age psychedelic communities are aware of that, and that we we can maintain or, or, or hold a kind of ambiguity in place, like. You look at the Bible, people's spiritual experiences or ecstatic experiences are not always just shiny happy, are they? No, they're like, often like um, terrifying on your face in front of the glory of God. That yeah. is, is scary as well as an inviting, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then and then we can look at, at religious traditions like uh, Christianity and Buddhism and how they talk about and the, and the tools they give us for these kinds of experiences, um, like things like uh, the importance of community um, to, to just, you know, stop us going off the deep end, um, the importance of discernment, because when you're in a, an ecstatic state, you can easily give way to kind of spiritual inflation or, or kind of messianism, apocalypticism, over-certainty. So the tools of critical discernment are really important as well. Uh, and humility, I think, is is in a way what I feel about New Age culture is it 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 it, 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 it on the good side it gave people an, a, a way to develop themselves and 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 to try to find God even if they couldn't really fit into Christian churches. Um, but what it did was it sometimes it jettisoned um, Christian kind of humility and instead said, "No, you can be God. You can directly access the divine." Um, and, it, you know, merged with kind of Nietzscheanism and the kind of Superman stuff. 
And 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 that's dangerous, I think, when you're having ecstatic experiences, because you can start thinking, I am God, I am perfect, I am a pure light warrior. Uh, and humility is so important in that, balancing out and saying, no, I'm just, I'm, yes, you have, you know, God within you and, and, and you're, you're part of God, but you're not uniquely God. You're not kind of some special, special elect person. Jules, that's so helpful. Um, I've talked to you for far too long already, but I want to close with a final question. I was going to ask, you know, you, I think there's two quite distinct tribes that we're talking about here. There's the more straightforwardly Christian, um, you know, broadly orthodox community, some of whom are charismatic, some of whom really aren't and, and have a similar kind of discomfort with ecstatic experiences, but it's brought, they've sort of one mm. tribe divided. And then there's the kind of spiritual, but not religious, the new age tribe. And you're one of the few people I know who actually feels pretty comfortable in both and crosses those. I think generally there's quite mm. a lot of mutual suspicion or mutual hostility to the other, even though, as we've heard, they maybe have more in common than they think. You said some things that maybe the new age tribe could learn from or understand better about Christianity in terms of community and humility. What would you like um, religious people to understand or or even learn from kind of spiritual and not, but not religious communities? Um, I would say um, uh, respect for other traditions, um, not seeing them as demonic. Uh, and I know that it's really tricky for um, for religious traditions in a in a global multicultural world. In like, how do we relate to each other? Um, and we want to say that you know we think our way is is like the best way to God. And 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 maybe if you're a Christian, I can see that you want to say, well, ours is like the only way. Like that's the idea of Christianity. Only through Jesus uh, can you get to God. But um, I think it's possible and. Uh, I mean, I read a book recently by a theologian, Keith Ward, uh, and he talked very interestingly about kind of perennialism, the idea that there's kind of deep wisdom in lots of different traditions. Um, but what, what he ended up advocating was was kind of inclusivism, uh, which is basically the, the idea, I think my path to God is the best path, and it's certainly my path, but I'm very interested in other paths um, and it's possible and very probable that God is greater than any human construction, uh, you know, any verbal construction. And therefore, it's possible that in in talking to someone from another tradition, I may catch a glimpse of God that I haven't seen. Jules Evans, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. You can find previous episodes on our website. Have a look through the back catalogue and I'm sure you'll find someone that you think sounds interesting. You can also connect with us via our social channels and we always love hearing from you. So please keep sending in your suggestions for guests or improvements. If you value what we do, the best way you can support us is by sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast, especially on iTunes, because it really helps other people find it. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos. And you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.